welcome to Women on the Line, a national feminist current affairs program produced by women and gender diverse people at 3CR Community Radio in Melbourne on unceded Kulin Nation's land and broadcast nationally on the Community Radio Network. I'm Priya Kunjan. This week on Women on the Line, we're going to be diving back into a pressing and very topical issue, climate change. From this summer's deadly flooding across large areas of Queensland and northern New South Wales to the devastating bushfires across 2019 and 2020, it's clearer than ever that addressing and mitigating the effects of climate change can no longer be sidelined. In the face of government ambivalence and investments in the extractive industries for members of both of the major political parties, communities have been organizing to raise awareness about and fight for urgent action on the climate crisis. Today's show features two women working towards climate justice in so-called Australia. Tishiko King from Seed Indigenous Youth Climate Network and Emma Bacon from Sweltering Cities. You'll hear from Tishiko first on climate vulnerability and fighting for climate justice in Zenith Kes or the Taurus Strait. And later on in the show, we'll be joined by Emma to discuss the effects of rising temperatures on urban heat stress and the need for sustainable and adaptive residential infrastructure. Tishiko King is a proud Torres Strait Islander with strong connections to Masig and Badu Islands and is the campaign's director at Seed Indigenous Youth Climate Network. Tishiko is also a campaigner with the Our Islands, Our Home campaign, which supports the Torres Strait 8 as they take their case against the Australian government to the United Nations for inaction on climate change. My name is Tishiko King. All my friends call me Tish like a fish. And I am a proud Kakalug woman from Kakagal Nation from the island of Musig in Senator's Kess, known as the Central Island Group of York Island in the Torres Strait Islands. And I would like to acknowledge where I currently am, the Aranta people and traditional custodians of the countries that I'm on, and acknowledge that we celebrate their enduring connections to country, knowledge and stories, and extend my respects to those surrounding communities. I thought we might start off by discussing some of the effects of climate change in Zenith Kess or the Torres Strait and how this has gone largely ignored in some of the mainland-centered considerations of climate change impact and vulnerability, for example, as we've seen in you know, mainstream media reporting. For Torres Strait Islanders, you know, they are on the front lines of the climate crisis. Their communities among those that contribute the least to climate change, but are feeling its effects the most. And without urgent action, they risk being forcibly removed from the islands because of rising sea levels and the effects of climate change, where we could become refugees within our own country. And that, to me, is bizarre because Torres Strait Islander peoples, they've lived in harmony with their islands, their lands, their seas in the sky for thousands and thousands of years and continue to act as custodians for their island homes, as well as surrounding regions of, you know, the incredible restructure that we call the Great Barrier Reef. But what we already see now and what I have seen in my lifetime is rising sea levels, king tides ripping away our sacred burial grounds, erosion, inundation, ocean acidification from, you know, our oceans warming. And with that, our ecosystems of our food security really at risk. We've got droughts and coral bleaching caused by climate change that are already threatening the homes and cultures of Torres Strait Islanders. We continually to see the current Australian government refuse to address 
the climate crisis. Climate change not only impacts ecosystems, but actually is the impact on Torres Strait Islanders' cultural practices and human rights. The urgency of the situation is actually really clear. Climate change is not a future threat. It's impacting Torres Strait Islanders now, and I actually just want to be super clear with that. And importantly, I think, as I'm here on radio, is that I just want to acknowledge that I am a proud mainland Torres Strait Islander, and I'm personally not on the impact, but my families are. And, you know, it is what gives me the mana and strength to make sure their voices are heard and their stories are told. Yeah, definitely. The impact that climate change is having now and has been having across the Torres Strait Islands is not something that's around the corner. This is something that's already been happening. And in the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change's latest assessment report was specific vulnerabilities that are faced by Indigenous communities to climate change. So I was wondering if you could take us through some of the, you know, projected concerns into the future if we don't do anything to mitigate climate change now and some of the adaptive mechanisms that have been suggested to kind of curb the human impact of these changes. We're seeing what's happening on Bundjalung country, Yugambe, uh, Turrbal country, where we're seeing flooding and, you know, homes, not for the first time, but maybe for the second time, third time, have been lost. We are seeing people fighting to survive, to make it to dry land, you know, having to deal with no power for days, weeks, don't have water, clean water, access to, you know, health amenities, I guess, to support your families. Torres Islander people deal with that every year. During wet season, we live in inundation in the Western Island groups. We deal with the change of those impacts where we see king tides start rushing and taking away our home. This isn't something new. This has been happening for decades. And for Torres Strait Islander people, we actually were seeing this back in the 1940s when we saw our communities actually already ask permission to live on mainland Australia, which is what is now known as the Northern Peninsula area in Cape York in Queensland where they have asked permission for the traditional owners there to co-live because they couldn't have, because of inundation and all the salt water, they didn't have good soil to grow crops, to have clean water. The Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change just released its sixth assessment report, the impact, adaption and vulnerability. This report shows those impacts, how we can adapt and actually how vulnerable these frontline communities are. And this report actually highlighted that Torres Strait Islander communities are already experiencing increased flood risk and water security. And the sea level rise has also undermined traditional coastal lines, including through the destruction of ancestral burial grounds, which I mentioned before, where I personally have had to pick up the bones from my ancestors. These impacts are predicted to intensify, and especially for the Central Island group where I come from, we are a group of low-lying islands of the Torres Straits, and so we actually face more frequent and coastal flooding in the coming decades before mid-century. One of the, our deadly Torres Strait 8 claimants, Awarabago, traditional owner, Kabe Tamu, agrees that climate impacts are already being experienced in the Torres Strait. And I don't want to obviously take his words, but... He watches the steady erosion of his coastlines. He witnesses his communities being inundated, infrastructure damaged 
like seawalls and flood defences breached, fresh water wells contaminated, plants and crops spoiled. This is our reality every year. This is our reality every day. I wish I could just show everyone a photo, but like we talk about seawalls, like some of the Torres Straits just don't have the infrastructure to be able to support them. And, you know, that's what's really scary. And so we are seeing many Torres Strait Islanders have expressed that leaving their island homes is actually not an option. And my big baller Yese, who is also a claimant, actually illustrated that we are at threat of being displaced. And this is all due to the government's failure to act on climate change. And this would actually be a catastrophe for us, where our land is just the string connecting us to our culture. It ties us to who we are. And if we were to move, if we were to just disconnect, our culture becomes extinct. And Bola Yese used powerful words that we could be a dying race of people. I appreciate you really emphasizing the cultural aspect of this because this isn't just about the physical realities of living with climate change and adapting, but also affects cultural practices and affects your being as Torres Strait Islanders. And I'm wondering if you could tell us a bit about what Islanders have been doing to build climate resilience and to fight for climate justice. Look, maybe I'm biased as a proud Islander, but as a, as a young person that works in this space and with the you know, movement building, I am every day am honored, inspired, empowered, and in awe of our leaders, our peers, our people that are on the front lines who are continuing to adapt to survive and still exist. And so, like the deadly eight Torres Strait claimants, and maybe for folks out there that need a little bit of context, our island, our home, is supporting the Torres Strait Eight as they take their case against the Australian government to the United Nations for their inaction on climate change. They are eight incredible people where our eldest one is in their 80s, and they are continuing to fight to be able to still be there and still remain, you know, on that island. And so these frontline members of the climate crisis, they've been spearheading this campaign, having critical conversations with their MPs, sharing their story, networking and building while cultivating relationships with other grassroots groups to then help amplify and share their message and share their story and share the incredible voices of the Zenith people. So it really seems like people have been doing a lot of work at the grassroots level to fight for climate justice, to raise awareness, and to make sure that people are not just listening, but taking action. How can people find out more about the work of both Seed Mob and the Our Islands, Our Homes campaign and support that work? Thank you so much. I can't wait for everyone to get involved and take action. You know, while we struggle for the recognitions of the humanity and our rights of Indigenous people, it's people like Torres Strait Islander people, First Nations people, Indigenous people across the globe that are actually just leading for change for our future. And it's really time that we abandon these patriarchal and colonial ideologies rooted in the things like the doctrine of discovery and terror knowledge because we have always been here and we were never discovered. Definitely head to Seed Mob and definitely head to Our Islands, Our Homes, who are really sharing and amplifying traditional owners and the leaders that are fighting to stay in community.
as we lead up into the election. They've got a joint statement actually with Climate Council where they have demands to build a sense of urgency and community support and scrutiny of politicians to pressure them into speaking up on the issue in their party. And so that will be released in the next couple of weeks. I would love for people to, you know, really get behind that. But something that folks can do today is our islands are home, have a deadly message that one of the claimants, Kabe Tamu, who I quoted before, he has an incredible and powerful message to the MP Warren Ench based in the Leichhardt, which is North Queensland and the Torres Strait Islands and Cape York. And so I reckon if people could right now jump online, share that, and then tag Warren Ench and Our Islands Our Home, that would be so deadly. And we could just, you know, make some noise. Right now we need the people power to stand shoulder to shoulder because we need to rebalance this human nature interaction that is central to our culture and our traditions and, honestly, our country. We need to stand together. We need to lead this movement because climate justice is First Nations justice. And we need to create the future that we want to see. Women on the line. <laughs> Women on the line. <laughs> <laughs> You're listening to Women on the Line on your local community radio station. And you just heard a conversation with Tishiko King from Seed Mob about climate change in the Torres Strait. You're now going to hear from Emma Bacon, who's the project founder and coordinator of Sweltering Cities. Sweltering Cities, quote, has a vision for cooler, more equitable and sustainable cities with planning and policy that puts people at the center. Emma and I speak about the importance of sustainable and adaptive development that takes into account rising temperatures and the effects that this has on people living in urban areas. Hi, Emma. Thanks so much for joining me on Women on the Line. Thanks very much, Brill. So to start off with and to give us a bit of a picture of the work that Sweltering Cities is tackling, could you give us a bit of a broad brush overview of relationships between urban infrastructure and climate change with a bit of a focus on the effects of rising temperatures on domestic, public and business infrastructure and what the future holds based on our current trajectory? Well, there's two main angles when we're talking about, you know, urban infrastructure, urban design and climate change. And one thing is how the way our cities are built exacerbates climate change. You know, we have these really carbon-intensive cities. And the other one is how able our cities are to adapt to climate change. So on the first one, cities like Sydney and Melbourne and, you know, cities across Australia have been built to be really car-friendly. There's lots of sprawl in some areas, big roads. We've got lots of areas where in new developments there aren't very many trees, lots of concrete. And these are areas what we call urban heat islands. So urban heat islands can be multiple degrees warmer than other parts of the city. You look at treeless streets, concrete that absorbs heat and then radiates it back out into the evening, and you've got dark surfaces, lots of dark roofs that also absorb heat. People can find urban heat islands in industrial areas, but also people might be familiar with the new estates in parts of Western Melbourne that are also you know, new urban heat islands that are being created. And these areas are, as I said, really carbon intensive, not just because of the way we build, but also because of their reliance on air conditioning in order to keep cool in summer. 
and also the fact that there's limited public transport, infrastructure, jobs are far away, which means people are relying on cars and increasing transport-related carbon emissions. So those are just two small ways in which, or two large ways, in which the way our cities are built exacerbates climate change. And when we're talking about decarbonizing our cities, we need to address things like that. But also, you know, how are our cities going to be able to adapt to climate change? You know, right now, lots of the East Coast is facing this wild weather, you know, with floods, and that's happening partly because there is increased moisture in the atmosphere due to global warming. At the same time this year, you're also seeing in Perth are just smashing heat records. They've had over 11 days over 40 degrees, and they've blown past the record number of days over 40 of any Australian capital city. I think they've had seven days in a row. So at the same time as we're talking about these cooler, wetter, Nini is in the East Coast, what Perth is experiencing is the effect of global warming as well, you know, these really intense heat waves. Are our cities built to adapt to these temperatures? We would say no. We would say that, you know, at the moment people are suffering in the heat. Heat-related diseases affect our most vulnerable populations, older people, sick people, really young kids, pregnant women, and we need to really be addressing that quickly. <laughs> we believe that there needs to be more energy, more resources being put into supporting the communities impacted by extreme heat in order to support them to win campaigns for tangible local changes, not just to adapt to rising heat, but also create the decarbonised cities of the future that are more livable, sustainable and equitable. Sweltering Cities is investigating these phenomena and the way that they affect people's everyday experiences through your community surveys. And so you launched your first one at the end of 2020 to record people's experiences of living with rising temperatures in Sydney and Melbourne. And you've currently got a 2021 to 22 survey that is still open. So can you tell us a bit more about what you're investigating here, particularly around questions of heat stress inequality? Because I know that there's an unequal distribution of heat stress and vulnerability to rising temperatures globally. But I'm also sure there are distinct disparities across who's exposed to greater risk within Australia as well. For sure. So the two things we're investigating in the survey, and this year we've partnered with the Healthy Homes for Renters campaign. So this is specific focus on renters, but the survey is open to everyone, no matter where you live in Australia or your living circumstances. But the two things we're looking at are firstly people's experiences with the heat. So as you said, that's how people feel the heat in their homes. It's their health impacts. We're specifically asking people, you know, any of the mental health or physical health impacts that they're feeling. And I guess just as an aside, what's been really stark this year is how many people are mentioning the mental health impacts. And there are studies showing that during heat waves, there is increase in hospitalizations related to mental health issues with increase in assault during that time. But it's one thing to know those statistics and it's another thing to see so many people expressing feelings of anxiety and depression related to not being able to keep cool in the heat. So, you know, we're looking at those experiences. We want to understand how people feel. We want to amplify those really powerful stories. But the other thing that we're investigating is we want to hear people's ideas for what can be done. You know, we think and we've seen consistently throughout the survey that people are thinking really local and they're thinking global when it comes to these solutions. But often we don't feel like we've got the power, you know. But what people do feel like they can do is change their local suburb, change their homes and get together and win those things. We're feeling a lot of momentum. And the community survey is collecting all these ideas. 
This is everything from having more water bubblers, like water fountains on the street so people can feel cool and safe. It's everything from bus shelters in hot suburbs to make sure that public transport is accessible. It's also things like climate resilient planning and saying that there should be rules for renters to make sure their homes are comfortable in summer as well as winter. There's all sorts of different ideas and there are issues of infrastructure, there's issues of what happens in our home and there's issues of justice. And, you know, you were just asking about heat stress inequality. We know that people who feel the heat and are most at risk of heat-related illnesses like dehydration, heat stress, heat exhaustion, and even heat stroke, which can be deadly, are people who have chronic illnesses or disabilities, pregnant people or really young kids. Young kids can't regulate their body temperature in the same way adults can, as well as older people. And again, like it's the differences in how people are able to regulate their body temperature. But how you can deal with the heat is often really to do with your housing. So if you have a house that's really energy efficient, you've got fantastic green design, you've also got solar panels with air conditioning, you might feel the heat, but you're not as much at risk as people who live in, you know, are renters who can't make even simple changes to their houses, or people who live in public housing who have even less control. There's also big heat impacts on the homeless community that we can't ignore as well. Like that's also a big health risk for people. So with where people live and how much control they have over their environment, that has big impact on the health outcomes. Of course, lots of cities, I'll just speak about Western Sydney briefly, but this is also true in parts of Melbourne. But parts of Western Sydney have people who are poorer, they've got big migrant communities, people with less political power and fewer resources to keep themselves and their families cool. And it's totally unacceptable that we are planning cities that exacerbate this problem, whilst at the same time not providing services for people to be safe in the heat. And it's totally unacceptable that we don't have action plans around the country to really properly deal with that. In Melbourne, we've been working with public housing residents in Flemington. They've had their cool rooms, you know, their community rooms in the bottom of their buildings closed since the beginning of COVID, the COVID pandemic restrictions that are yet to be opened. And, you know, residents use these spaces as cool shelters, as heat safety rooms during heat waves. And that's just a really clear example of how Public housing residents have really minimal control over things like that in their apartment building, but not having those cool spaces can be life-threatening for people. Yeah, absolutely. What you've said there also leads into the question of the impacts of climate change and what it means for vulnerability and adaptation. And these were key points of focus in the latest report of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, or IPCC, which was released last month. And it emphasizes that we're already experiencing a range of irreversible impacts of human-induced climate change. So adaptation strategies are really non-negotiable at this point, and action has to be taken to prevent further disastrous possibilities. Could you tell us a bit more about what Australia is facing with respect to both heat risk, vulnerability and possibilities for adaptation and where the government comes into this, both at the state and the federal level? Well, I think one of the clearest messages from the most recent report is that there is an increasingly narrow window for action and that we need to be wholeheartedly committing to transforming not just our energy systems, but so many different parts of our society and our economy if we're going to limit increasing global temperatures. There are suburbs across Australia, there are cities, like Darwin is going to face months of extreme heat every year. You know, this is a huge risk to that community. Some people use the word unlivable, but I think that's not the right word to use because we know that people will continue to live in these extremely hot places. But it's going to be people who don't have the resources to move somewhere that's cooler. 
look at places like Penrith in Western Sydney, and they've already experienced high temperatures, record temperatures of up to 48.9 degrees. You know, we're measuring up to 50 degrees already on the street pavements in that area. Under a high emission scenario, they're projected to have over about two months of days over 35 degrees Celsius each year. And 35 degrees Celsius, it's temperatures above that that we call extreme heat. And that's because it does put a lot of pressure on the human body. When it comes to possibilities for adaptation, I think one of the key words from the most recent report is the word maladaptation. So that's when the ways we respond to the impacts of global warming actually exacerbate the problem. An example for that is, you know, it gets extremely hot in the urban heat islands, suburbs are extremely hot in our cities. More and more people get air conditioning. But air conditioning can also, like once it might cool your home, heat up the local environment. And also if people aren't using solar power, they might be relying on fossil fuels in order to run those air conditioners. So what we need to do is, when it comes to adaptation, really consider how we can both mitigate climate change as well as adapt to it. So that means planting lots of trees. I know that that seems like a simple thing, but actually having much more ambitious tree planting programs across the country and across Victoria will be great. You know, there's parts of Western Melbourne that have only 5 to 10% tree cover in those suburbs, and that's just going to cause all sorts of problems into the future. Other things are expanding our public transport system in order to have less cars, you know, changing the way we build, having no more dark roofs, having white roofs, things like that. There's ways we can adapt to make our homes and our suburbs more energy efficient, which means lower electricity bills, it means healthier homes with healthier residents, and it means lower carbon output and less reliance on air conditioners. So where can people find out more about sweltering cities and take the survey? So people can find the community survey if they go to our website, swelteringcities.org forward slash summer underscore survey. We have a goal in Victoria of getting above 700 responses by the end of March, which is when we're going to be closing the survey. The more people who do the survey, the more powerful the statistics we come out of it will be. And it also means we can compare different parts of the city if we have enough answers. I just really kind of has enough how powerful the stories that people are sharing are. So we'd really love it if people can share it around. We also want to hear from people who've got really great ideas about what we can do in different suburbs of Melbourne and different types of homes to make them cooler and more livable and more sustainable. Today's program featured conversations with Tishiko King from SeedMob, who joined us to speak about fighting for climate justice in the Torres Strait, and Emma Bacon from Sweltering Cities, who you just heard discussing heat stress in urban Australia and the need for equitable climate adaptation measures. Again, you can find more information about the organizing work of SEED at seedmob.org.au, and you can also find out more about the Torres Strait 8 at ourislandsourhome.com.au. Women on the Line is produced and presented by women and gender-diverse people in the studios of 3CR Community Radio on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nations. Women on the Line is broadcast nationally via the Community Radio Network, and this is made possible with funding support from the Community Broadcasting Foundation. The theme music for Women on the Line is by Ripley Kavara, and our past programs can be downloaded at 3cr.org.au forward slash women on the line. I'm Priya Kunjan, and tune into Women on the Line next week on your local community radio station. We'll catch you then.
You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.